you could turn with me, please, to John's Gospel, chapter 16. John's Gospel, chapter 16. And it's good to be here in Midland Park with you this cool fall evening. John, chapter 16. And we're actually going to be looking at chapter 17, but I just want to read a couple of verses at the end of chapter 16 and make a couple of comments before we actually read John 17. This is just to kind of set the chapter in its context. John 17, I know, is a chapter that is very well known and well loved. And perhaps you will hear nothing new tonight, but perhaps it will warm our hearts in this cool fall evening. Verse 32, John 16, Behold, the Lord Jesus says, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. We could ask ourselves uh, a question or two before we read the chapter. One would be, does prayer actually matter? Does God actually hear prayer? Does God answer prayer? Does prayer make a difference in our life? And I think that if we want to see part of the answer, we don't only look at our own experience and think about moments in our lives when God has answered our prayers, but we look at the perfect man, at the Lord Jesus, and we see that he understood the importance of prayer. He took it very seriously. And there were times when he didn't pray as short as what we are going to read this evening, that he would spend all night in prayer. So I think the answer is obvious to us that prayer does matter, that prayer does make a difference, that God does hear prayer. Before we read the chapter, just a few comments. What would you put as a title over this chapter that we're going to read, chapter number 17? Well, some have called it the High Priestly Prayer of the Lord Jesus which is a fine title. We just have to remember that the Lord Jesus was not yet high priest. And others have called it, Our Lord Prays for His Own. There's a good thick commentary that I read a number of years ago by Marcus Rainsford. Marcus isn't a very common name. That's why it actually sticks in my head. Uh, and it's called, Our Lord Prays for His Own. Or Mr. Spurgeon wrote one that was called, Christ's Supplication. So you can think about a title for it, but perhaps really the best is the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus, because what we are going to read together this evening, in a certain sense, represents what he is doing for us tonight as his believers. Not just the title, think about the timing. It is obviously just before he is going to the cross. It is just before he is going to leave the disciples in a, a world that is going to be opposed to them, is going to hate them as it hated him. Think about what we have read here at the end of chapter number 16, where, where he says, In the world ye shall have tribulation. So he understands that the world in which he is living is a world full of tribulation. And that perhaps will help us to understand the, the loveliness of this, of this chapter that applies to us even tonight. You could think as well of, of all the ties that we have, because what we have here in chapter 17 really is the conclusion to the upper room ministry. 
Now, where exactly he was, some would think that perhaps he had, he had left the upper room and, and he's moving along towards the Garden of Gethsemane, and that is perhaps very true. But nonetheless, there are many ties that we can find if you started to read in chapter 13 and continued all the way through the end of chapter number 16, and then you read chapter 17, you will see how there are many links back with the previous chapters, where he mentions, for example, the hour, where he speaks about the words and the works, and he'll speak about the glory, and he'll speak about truth and joy and love, and all these themes come again into chapter number 17. But think with me as well about the the tone or, or the tenor of this particular chapter. Because you could ask yourself, if, if you knew that death was just around the corner, that men were going to come and they were going to take you and they were going to crucify you, what would be the tone and tenor of your prayer? Would there be some level of despair, of desperation, of uh, sadness, of defeat? In, in this prayer, we will find none of these notes. The, the tone and the tenor is of confident expectation. And, and although he is going to soon leave this earth, he understands that he is leaving others, and, and they will continue on with the work that he has commenced. So although he is facing the cross, there is no pessimism, there is no sorrow, but there is a joyful, confident expectation that God is listening to him. And so we find what we ought to see in our own prayers as well, this, this reverence, this respect, although he obviously is speaking to his father uh, as a peer in a certain sense because he himself is the son of God and we come to God in a, on a much different level. But at the same time, we see this reverence that he shows to his disciples as he prays to his father. So read with me. Well, you can read along. I will actually read out loud. Uh, there are places in Mexico and people sometimes come along to meetings from these places, and as a person reads, they like to read along uh, muttering as well. But I'm not asking you to do that tonight. I'm just asking you to follow along in your own Bible. Verse number one. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world. But these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep thou, sorry, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee. And these things I speak in the world, 
that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil, or the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that thou, that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. And we trust that God will bless the reading of his word. Now don't hide your Bible because we will be using it again throughout the meeting. Think about, think about the duration of this prayer. It doesn't last an awful long time. It takes maybe three or four minutes to read it, depending on how quickly you speak. And I'm not sure, obviously, how quickly the Lord spoke these words, but obviously it is not a very long prayer in its duration. But when we think about the word duration, there's another thought that comes to mind, that, that although he is praying for his disciples that are right there present with him, very close to him at the very least, he mentions you and me as well. Because when we come to verse number 20, it says, I'm not only praying for these alone, but also for those that shall believe on me through their word. And you and I as believers here tonight, that is what has happened. We have come to believe on the Lord Jesus because of the word of these men that heard him, that saw him, that were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he prayed for us. So the duration as far as the time spent praying is very short, but its duration is very long. Here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we were on his heart when he was praying this particular prayer. But think about the direction of the prayer as well. And you say, well, that's fairly obvious, and it is because it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father. Now, six times in this chapter we find the word Father. One time it says, Holy Father, and one time he says, Righteous Father. But only six, time, six times in all the prayer do we find him using the name of his Father. But nonetheless, that is important to us because he had taught, he had taught his disciples to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. So you and I as believers have the same access into the presence of God. And I don't know how much we actually take advantage of that, how much we actually appreciate the fact that we can come before the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, and call him our Father. But that is what the Lord Jesus did. He says, Father, Holy Father, Righteous Father. So he, he, directs, he directs the prayer to his Father, but at the same time, it is obvious that this was going to be for the benefit of the apostles that were listening in. 
There were only 11 of them at this time because Judas had already left. But here are 11 apostles and exactly what distance they are at, I don't know. But they are listening to what the Lord Jesus says. And he is going to impart in this prayer great truths. Now, I'm not suggesting that when you and I pray that we think about what others are going to think about our prayer. That is not what I'm saying. But although we direct our prayers to God, I, I trust that we don't pray horizontally. Uh, I've been in places where they pray horizontally. You can tell that they're praying for somebody amongst them that night, uh, and they're directing uh, what we call in Mexico indirect comments. Well, they are actually pretty direct comments. But really, when we pray, we pray to God. But there can be, there should be a benefit to the believers. And that is why at the end of a prayer, uh, we open our mouths and we say, Amen. Because we, we've been paying attention to what the brother is saying when he's praying. And if you live in my country and some other countries, the sisters join in and say, Amen as well. But I won't get into that particular point tonight. But nonetheless, we all join in and we say, Amen. There's a hearty Amen in Hermosillo when we, when we pray. Because believers enjoy the benefit of what is being said. And that, I think, is even more true when they heard the Lord Jesus pray. But think about not only the duration and the direction, think about the design of this prayer. Because there's, there's one theme, now there might be more than one theme, but there's one theme that comes to my mind as I read through it. And, and the word is sent or send. Because he speaks about the fact that he has been sent and the fact that he is sending them. And so the message that he brought to earth, he is now going to leave earth, he is going to leave the world, another word that we find many times, and he's going to leave the world and he's going to leave the charge of taking the gospel in the hands of those that he has sent into the world. And so that overriding theme, I think, is in this particular chapter. So again, our prayers are directed to God, but they ought to be appreciated by others that are listening to us. Now, I don't know when is the last time here in Midland Park that a young brother came into fellowship and uh, uh, rose to his feet on a Lord's Day morning and worshipped. And your heart was perhaps strangely warmed. There's a young, there's a young man in Hermosillo. Uh, back in 2010, we moved from Tepic to Hermosillo. And uh, Angel uh, started spending most weekends at our house all during 2011. He was a little bit older than our son Sam, and they became close friends. And... Uh, in 2012, 2013, he decided that the world was quite attractive. And he began to use every type of drug that was available and uh, spent basically five years on the streets, living in abandoned houses, sometimes at home, but most often not. Became involved in, uh, in uh, gangs and that type of thing and stealing, and that's how he basically survived. Last August, August 2017, his best friend died in his arms. At a party, he was, uh, his lung was punctured, and uh, he died in his arms. And Angel said to himself, this is not what I ought to be doing. This is not the way that I was brought up. Four months passed of tremendous struggles and troubles in his heart and in his soul. And finally, December, all by himself at home, with having attended one meeting in September, he fell to his knees and was saved in December. I, I took him out for supper one night, we eat supper late in Mexico. Uh, I took him out for supper uh, after meeting, and I said, whose turn is it to give thanks? And he says, mine. Well, I, I tell you, I could hardly eat after listening to him pray, because I hadn't heard him pray, ever. 
And as he prayed, you could tell that he was actually speaking to God. He, he, really, he really was convinced that he was speaking to God as his father. And it wasn't a long prayer, but it warmed my heart. And in September, he was added to the fellowship. And first Sunday in the, in the assembly, and he rises to his feet. And if you talk about a hearty amen, oftentimes in Hermosillo, there was a very hearty amen that particular morning. So I get back to my theme because I didn't come here to give a report about Angel. But you could pray for him. Almost several times a week, he gets on a bus and he goes with tracks and he stands at the front of the bus and he preaches the gospel for three or four minutes and then he gets a track to everybody in the bus, gets off of the bus stop, gives everybody a track, gives them a little preach and has a, a fervent, burning desire to share the gospel with others. So you can remember him in your prayers that God will preserve him. So come back with me, if you can, in your minds to John chapter 17. What we have in John chapter 13 is really an illustration of what service is. The Lord Jesus illustrates for them. He, he washes their feet and he's telling them this is what service is all about. It's humble. It's caring for others. It's, it's seeing a need and it's meeting a need. And then in chapters 14, 15, and 16, he is going to give them instruction. He's going to teach them. Teach them many things. He'll teach them about the Spirit. He'll teach them about his second coming. All, all, all kinds of things he teaches them. He instructs them in chapter 14, 15, and 16. And then in chapter 17, we find this intercession on their behalf. If you come to the beginning of chapter 13, he's looking down. Obviously, if you're going to wash the feet of the disciples, you're looking down. When you come to the beginning of chapter 17, he's looking up to heaven. In chapter 13, he's laying hold of the feet, shall we say the dirty feet of the disciples? And in chapter 17, he's laying hold of the very throne of God. So that, that is the change that we find between chapter 13 and chapter number 17. This is not the only prayer that he has that particular in this particular time frame. In chapter 18, if we had kept on reading, and uh, perhaps we should have, but it says in chapter number 18 that when, when he has spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the, bro the brook Cedron, where there was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And obviously there he prayed. And you know what he prayed? He prayed in in complete submission to his Father's will. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So there was a prayer of submission. Chapter 17, a prayer of intercession, thinking about others. But you'll think about Peter as well, because the Lord Jesus was concerned about his disciples, and he prays especially for Peter that his faith would not fail. That's a prayer for preservation, shall we say. But besides that, there's, there's another prayer, isn't there? He's in the upper room, and, and before him on the table, there is a loaf and a cup. And he takes, he takes the loaf in his hand and says, this is my body. He gives thanks. He prays. And the same with a cup. Uh, although he understands full well what this represents, and, and the pain and the suffering that is before him, he can give thanks. And so we find the Lord Jesus is a man of prayer. Even, even at the very end of his life, this is what we find the Lord Jesus praying. Now come with me again. We're going to go back even farther. When we come to the Gospel of John, you can, you can see three offices of the Lord Jesus. You start in John's Gospel, chapter number 1, perhaps somewhere around verse number 19, and you come all the way to the end of chapter number 16, and you will find the Lord Jesus as prophet. Because what did a prophet do? A prophet brought the message of God to the people. And he is a prophet, and he is telling the people the message from God. The interesting thing is, 
And I have to say that this evening when I sat down here, and all day today and yesterday too, I was going to speak on Hebrews chapter number one. Uh, but um, about two minutes to eight, I decided that I was going to speak in John chapter 17, and mainly because of the hymn that my brother gave out. But getting back here again, it, sa it says that he was not only the messenger, but really Hebrews 1 will tell us that he is the message. Okay, The prophets brought a message, but he himself was the message. But coming back to John's, John's gospel. So he is a prophet from chapter 1 to chapter 16. He is a priest, acting as a priest in John chapter number 17. And so that obviously leaves us with one more office that we find in the Old Testament, the office of king. Now, when somebody would, were to ask you, if somebody were to ask you what gospel presents the Lord Jesus as king, I think that most of us would say, Matthew. And it's true, it does. But the, but the truth of the matter is when we come to John 18, 19, and 20, 12 times there is a reference to the Lord Jesus as king, more than what we even find in the gospel of Matthew. So here he is, prophet, priest, and king. Now, I say that he's acting as priest because when we come to the book of Hebrews again, chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, we will find that the Lord Jesus was a priest, but that priesthood began, as far as I can understand, once he returned to heaven. He was not actually a priest while he was here on earth. And chapter 8, verse number 4 would tell us that fairly clearly. But when we come back to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 1, the writer to the Hebrews will tell us this, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. So in a certain sense, what we find here at this juncture of John's gospel, he is ending his apostolic ministry and he is beginning his high priestly ministry. And the thing about this high priest, when he brings a sacrifice, he himself is a sacrifice. And that again is Hebrews chapter number one. So here he is acting at the very least as a priest. Now, if you go back even farther in your Bible, to the book of Exodus in chapter number 28. This past Lord's Day in Hermosillo, we've been going through, we've been going through the book of Exodus, and it was my responsibility to share something about the, the clothing, the garments of the high priest. So you will know very well that on the shoulders of the high priest, there were two onyx stones, and in each stone, there was graven the names of six tribes, and he was to bear these stones upon his shoulders, two shoulders, okay? And as he entered the presence of God, he would have the names of the tribes of Israel on his shoulders. Now, you will know that shoulders will speak to us about strength. It, it causes me to, uh, to marvel oftentimes when I, see, when I see men grabbing these 100-pound bags of cement and throwing them on their head or their shoulders in Mexico and carrying them around. Well, you do that to me, and I can assure you that I'll be flat out. Okay, but, but they can handle it. But here, we obviously understand that the shoulders are the place of strength. And when you think about the shoulders of the Lord Jesus, perhaps what comes to our mind is the, the parable that he taught in Luke's Gospel, chapter number 15, about a shepherd that had a hundred sheep, one sheep is lost, and he goes after the sheep until he finds it, and he places the sheep upon his shoulders, and he takes it back to his house, and he rejoices, along with his neighbors, that one sheep had been found. And so obviously when we think about that story, we think about salvation. And we think about the security that we find, obviously figuratively, being placed upon the shoulders of the Lord Jesus, that he will take us all the way home. So the idea that, that is so prevalent in, 
in many Christian places, Christian places is, is the idea that you can lose your salvation. That, that is not what the Bible teaches us. We are secure in a place of strength upon the shoulders of our Savior. But you will know that when we continue reading in Exodus chapter number 28, we find as well that his name, that, that the stones are upon, upon the breastplate of the high priest. And now it's not six on one side and six on the other side. Individually, individually they are there upon his heart. So if the shoulders are a place of strength, obviously the, the breast is a place of affection, a place of love. And so I think that when you come to John 17, and if you are to take the time to read it again and just think about those two things, he obviously feels a tremendous responsibility for his disciples. And not only as far as their safety and security is concerned, but even the affection that is mentioned as we read through John's Gospel, chapter 17. It obviously is an anticipatory prayer. And if I say some of these words funny, it's because I speak Spanish far more than English. But there are many occasions in the chapter where we find he's speaking in the past tense about something that actually hasn't happened quite yet. But it's so certain that it will happen that he can speak in this particular way. So he's adopting, as it were, a post-Calvary stance as he begins this particular prayer. Now, what do we find in this particular chapter? In a, in a certain way, he is giving a report. And you will know that if, if somebody gives you a responsibility, sometimes at the end of a certain amount of time, they want a report. How did it go? What, what were you able to accomplish? And so now the Lord Jesus is coming towards the end of his, of his earthly life, shall we say, and he is giving a report to his Father of what he had been able to accomplish. So just look with me what it says in verse number four. It says, I have glorified thee, I have finished the work. Verse number six, he says, I have manifested thy name unto the men. Verse number eight, he says, I have given unto them the words. Verse number 10, he says, I am glorified in them. Verse number 12, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept. Verse 14, I have given them thy word. Verse 18, I have sent them into the world. Verse number 25, I have known thee. Verse number 26, I have declared unto them thy name. So he's saying, my father gave me a work to do, and this is the report. I have been able to do exactly what he asked me to do. Now, can you imagine? Perhaps you can. Can you imagine coming to the end of your life and being able to come with confidence before God and say, what God asked me to do in all of my life, I have completely accomplished? Wouldn't that be a marvelous thing to be able to say? Now, obviously, we, we fail, and, and on a frequent basis, perhaps, but the Lord Jesus never failed. Exactly what he was asked to do, he was able and willing to do. I think you see something similar, obviously, when you come to Second Timothy chapter 4 and the Apostle Peter. But not only do we find that he's giving a report of what he had been able to accomplish, I think that we find a note of restraint. Because, again, these apostles had been with him about three and a half years, and they're nearby, they're somewhere very nearby, they're listening to what he is saying, and there's no complaint, there's no criticism, there are no comments about their failures, about their faults, nothing of that is mentioned at all. Rather, he mentions what he appreciates about what they were able to do and what they were. So again, open your Bible and look at what it says in verse number 6. At the very end, it says, they have kept thy word. Verse number seven, 
Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. Verse number eight. They have received them. The words that thou gavest me, they have received them. They have known surely that I came out from thee. They have believed. That's verse number, verse number eight. Verse number 10. It says, I am glorified in them. That, that might have caused them a little bit of wonderment. I am glorified in them. So not only is he giving a report about what he had been able to do, but he is, he is mentioning the fact that he appreciated so many things about them. And so again, that is what our high priest is doing, even in the presence of God this very evening. Just think about, think about all these years later that the apostle John now has the responsibility to write this gospel. And he had heard these words, but now he is writing these words down. And again, maybe he is caused to worship as he, as he thinks about the fact that, that my savior, I, I leaned upon his breast. I was very close to him, but, but listen to what he says about, about us. Despite the fact that we failed, despite the fact that, that even, even in these important moments, they were in conflict one with another. They were discussing who would be the greatest. And yet the Lord Jesus doesn't mention any of these failures whatsoever as he prays to his Father for them. Then he makes some requests. So not only do we find the restraint and the report, but he has some requests. A number of requests, obviously, but just take three in mind just, just for a moment because they are in a, in a different tense. And I don't want to be technical this evening at all, but he says in verse number one, glorify. And in verse number five, he says the same thing, glorify. Verse number, verse number 11, he says, keep through thine own name. And then in verse number 17, he says, sanctify them through thy truth. These are three imperatives. Now, I don't know how you pray, but I don't think that we commonly pray to God with imperatives. But these are, these are imperatives. Because again, he is coming as an equal. And the words that he is going to use here are not the words that we would use as we approach God. Because although we have confidence, we have an ability to enter into his presence, we are not on an equal standing as the Lord Jesus was with him. I'll leave that, but he will obviously give some reasons for that as we read through the chapter as well. His sonship, the authority that he had, uh, and other things as well. And, and you will well know that when you read through a chapter, always, always try to know what are the words that are repeated time and time again, because obviously they were important to the person who was writing or who was speaking. So he mentions father, as I mentioned, six times, and he mentions the idea of the world many times and sent many times, and the other word is give. I think if my accounting is right, that there are seven things that are given in this particular chapter. Seven things that are, sorry, five things that are given to Christ and two things that are given to the believers. What is given to the believers? Well, something very simple in verse number eight. I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me. That would take us back to Isaiah chapter number 50, wouldn't it? Where every morning his ear was open to hear what God had to say to him. And the message that he received from God is the message that he gave to his own and to others as well, but the message that he gave to his own. So they received his words. They were given to them. But the other thing that he gave to them in verse number 22, the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Can you imagine? And if he is speaking in verse number 20 about the fact that he's praying also for those that will believe in his name, that, that means that you and I are partakers, we are sharers, in a certain extent, or to a certain extent, in his glory. Obviously, our glorification waits a, a coming day. And I don't think it's very difficult for anybody that's over the age of 
25 maybe, to realize that the day of glorification is something we long for more and more as we move through life's pathway. So I want to spend a little while this evening on the first five verses. If we get any farther than that, uh, that will be a marvel, honestly. But um, before we look at the first five verses, just come with me to one more verse, verse number 17, because I know for sure we won't get that far tonight. Verse number 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. When, when Peter takes up his pen and writes his epistle, in chapter number one, he says, be holy for I am holy. Not, not referring to himself, but quoting God from the book of Leviticus. So God's desire for you and for me in 2018 is that we be holy just as God is holy. Now, obviously, that will be on a different level, and you will understand that holy is the idea of being sanctified, being set apart. The idea of the word sanctify, the word holy is exactly the same word. So God's desire for you and for me is that we be holy, sanctified. And, and the Lord Jesus here will say that he has sanctified himself so that we might be sanctified. He had placed himself apart. He was willing to serve uh, in this way that we might be sanctified. But it isn't just that God says, be holy for I am holy and, and leaves us to our own attempts to become holy. He has placed within us the, the very day or the very night that we were saved, he placed within you and within me the Holy Spirit, who obviously is very interested in sanctifying us and making us more holy. But besides that, we have to ask ourselves the question, what, what is God going to use or what is the Holy Spirit going to utilize as, as a tool to make us more holy? The Lord Jesus tells us, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And so if we are going to actually obey the commandment of God in the book of Leviticus, again repeated in 1 Peter chapter number 1, to be more holy, we have the Holy Spirit interested in our sanctification, in our holiness, but we have the Word of God. And perhaps, perhaps, I would love to think that none of you know any believers that don't read their Bibles. But I know believers who don't read their Bibles. Or their Bible reading has to do with when they show up at meeting on a Sunday morning. And at the end of the breaking of bread, somebody gets up and gives a word and they open their Bible. That's probably the first time they did it that week. Well, you say, well, it's only Sunday morning. Well, yes, it is only Sunday morning. Uh, and then perhaps midweek, whatever day that happens to be where people attend meeting, then they open it again. And that's their Bible reading for the week. Well, that's not quite, that's not quite enough. Okay. We ought to read our Bible a, a lot more than that. You know, something, if I, if I can go back to my, my friend Angel again for a moment or two. The day after he got saved, he found his Bible in his room. It was dusty because it had been sitting there since September the 10th, which was the day he attended a meeting. So September the 10th till, mid, uh, till early December, his Bible was sitting there accumulating dust. And Hermosillo, I have a witness here, is a very dusty place. Okay, we're in the desert. It's dusty. So he dusted it off and he opened the Bible and he said, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1. And he read Matthew chapter 1. He hadn't read his Bible in more than a decade. Well, maybe not quite that long, but a long time. Probably six or seven years. Next day, I should read my Bible again. Matthew chapter 2. The next day, Matthew chapter 3. The next day, Matthew chapter 4. Now you say, well, that's not very much Bible reading, is it? No, I read 10 chapters a day. Very good. But for somebody that had never read ever really his Bible, I thought that was pretty good. And he kept on reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, you, you know how the New Testament goes, all the way right through the book of Revelation. And then he said, well, I'm going to start back in Genesis. I said, well, that's great. 
But you know, don't don't leave the New Testament. Go, get back to the Gospels as well. I said, okay, I can probably handle two chapters a day, Genesis 1 and Matthew 1. And then I said, after a while, I said, well, what about reading a Psalm? Psalms are lovely. And so he started reading Genesis, Psalms, and Matthew. And then he decided, well, I, th- I should be reading Acts as well. I really like the book of Acts. And then he started reading Hebrews because he said, I've gone through Genesis, Acts, and Leviticus. Now I kind of understand what Hebrews is all about. So I'll go back to Hebrews and read that too. So the desire to read the word of God is an indication that we actually are wanting to be what God wants us to be, which is what? Holy. Because it is the tool, the main tool that he's going to use. And sometimes we just have the Bible on a shelf. And the Bible on a shelf looks nice, but it doesn't help us become more holy. So I'll leave verse number 17 come back to verse number 1. Verse number 1, it says he lifted up his eyes to heaven. It's not the only time he lifts up his eyes in, in John's Gospel. He lifts up his eyes in, in chapter number 6 when he sees that great company of people that have a, a physical need. He lifts up his eyes in chapter number 11 when Lazarus has been placed in the tomb and he's going to pray and he says, Father, uh, I, I thank you that thou hast heard me. And Lazarus comes out. You know the story very well. Back in the book of the Psalms, we have the idea in Psalm 123, I believe it is, verse number one, unto thee I lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwells or dwelleth in the heavens. So he lifts up, his, lifts up his eyes. Now that will tell us that we don't necessarily have to have our eyes closed when we pray. Now I'm not saying you shouldn't close your eyes, don't take me wrong. I know that's our general habit, especially in a meeting we close our eyes. Now I know there's some people here tonight that would like to close their eyes for the next 15 minutes and you're struggling and that's fine, I understand. But there's nothing wrong with having our eyes open when we pray. I, I sometimes pray when I'm driving down the road. And, you know, you close your eyes driving down the road is kind of dangerous. Uh, I know there's self-driving cars now and all that, and they kind of give you a bit of a buzz in your steering wheel if you hit the line and that type of thing. But generally speaking, it's wise to have your eyes open. So the Lord Jesus opens his eyes, he lifts up his eyes to heaven, and he prays. Sometimes he prayed and he was prostate upon the ground. So there's different postures, obviously. Eyes shut, eyes open, standing up, kneeling, whatever the case might be. The important thing is that we pray because the Lord Jesus here in this prayer obviously is teaching us, amongst many other things, the importance of prayer and the fact that there is an intimate relationship that we have with our Father. And what does he pray? Well, he starts with Father and he says, the hour is come. Now again, if we had more time, we could trace the hour all through John's gospel, but we're not going to do that. Just go back to John chapter 2, when you find the Lord Jesus at a wedding, and you know that story very well as well, and his mother says they have no wine, and he says, my hour is not yet come. So there are many occasions when he says, my hour isn't come, and then there are occasions in chapter number 12, chapter number 13, and he says, my hour is come. So what I learned from that is a very practical lesson for me at least, that the Lord Jesus was always very conscious of God's timetable. He knew exactly what God wanted him to be doing and when God wanted him to do it. Because sometimes we can get a bit confused about that. But the Lord Jesus was always conscious of God's timing. So he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son. What what does the idea of glory mean to us? I think that when you come to the word of God, the idea of glory really is this. It's the manifestation of of power or of majesty or of dignity. So when he says, Father, glorify thy son, 
And then he says in verse number five, the same thing with the, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. He is he is speaking about a manifestation of of power or of majesty or of dignity. Now again, glory is a very common theme as you go through all the book of of John. In John one verse number fourteen, it says, "We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth." So John's gospel starts with glory. The last time we find glory in John's gospel is in this chapter in verse number 24 where he says, I want them to be with me that they may behold my glory in heaven. That's what he's speaking about. That they will be able to behold my glory which thou hast given me. So you could trace glory all through this particular book. Um, but one more, one more mention. Not just John 1 and John 17, but again, John chapter 2. When they are at that wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the Lord Jesus does take those six water pots, are they water pots of water? Um, whatever the word is in English. Seven, six large jugs of water, and he converts them into wine. It says he manifested his glory. It was a manifestation of his power, something that no other man could have done, no other woman could have done. Mary obviously couldn't have done it. We live in a country of much Mariology, but she couldn't have done that. So it is a manifestation of, of his glory, of his power, of his majesty that was shown in John's Gospel, chapter number 2. And it says, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. Why is it important to think about him being glorified? Well, if you were to trace the idea of, of a man in the glory... It is obviously very important for God to have a man in the glory. For his plans and his purposes, for God's divine timetable, for his program, we needed to have a man in the glory. And that's what Hebrews chapter 2 is really about. That's what Psalm 2 is about as well. A man in the glory, a man that will step off that throne one day in the future. And pardon me for leaving my context here for a moment, perhaps a little bit, but... It thrills my heart to think that that same man one day will step off that throne, will, will stand up and he will come back and he will reign as a man here upon earth. He will take his throne. He will be glorified not only in heaven, but he will be glorified here upon earth. But I do have to leave that and get back to where we were. So how was he going to be glorified? He was going to be glorified by means of the cross. Now, to, to us, the idea of being glorified in, in that particular way seems astounding. A man hanging on a cross is the beginning, it's not the end, but it is the beginning of this process of being glorified. And I think that you can get that when you go back to Psalm 21, and I believe it is verse number 5, and you don't have to look for it because I am looking for it. Psalm 21, verse number 5, His glory is great in thy salvation, honor and majesty hast thou laid upon him. So even, even in providing our salvation as he dies upon the cross, that is the beginning of this process of glorification. But it doesn't stop there. It has to do with his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, and his being seated at the right hand of God. So when he prays here in verse number 1, glorify thy son, it has to do with his death, through which he was going to provide salvation for you and for me. So then he says that thy son may also glorify thee. What does that mean? Well, I think you can perhaps look at it in a couple of different ways. But one of the ways is this, that, that God himself is glorified every time a sinner turns to Christ. So when he says here, glorify thy son, 
Allow me to go through this process and return to heaven so that thy son may glorify thee. Every time a sinner turns to Christ, God is glorified. There are other ways, obviously, that we can glorify God and that Christ can glorify God, but that is certainly one of them. And why do I say that? Because when we come to verse number two, it tells us that is the link. We don't want to look at every verse individually. We have to see how it's connected with the next verse. And he says, as thou hast given him power, or authority is the idea, over all flesh, that he should give eternal life unto as many as thou hast given him. So he says precisely what I was trying to explain. This idea that he would glorify God is as he gives eternal life to as many as God has given him. Now he is not limiting salvation to a certain number because it says precisely here that he has authority over all flesh, all flesh. I think the, those two words are, are, are pretty important in John's gospel. Number one, just think about flesh. Flesh has to do with us and all, all of our sinfulness and all of our weakness, our total inability to save our own selves. So he needed to have this power to give us eternal life because we were frail, we were weak, we were unable to save ourselves. But the other key word is all, all. Because when we come to John's gospel, it will speak much about God loving the world, John chapter 3, verse number 16. And you can find that even back in John's gospel, chapter number 1. But I'll have to leave that and move on a little bit farther as well. well one more verse just to mention about being glorified and the fact that it comes by means of the cross. Remember what it says in John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. He says, the hour is come that the Son of Man may be glorified. And then the next verse, he says, except, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. So that is the, the connection that we have between the, the death of the Lord Jesus being the beginning of this process of being glorified so that he can give eternal life unto many more. Verse number three. This is the only time that I can find in my Bible that he calls himself Jesus Christ. There are two times that he calls himself Jesus. Both of those times, he's actually in heaven. Remember when they were? Acts chapter number 9. And he's speaking to Saul, later Paul. And he's speaking to Saul and he says, I am Jesus. And there's a response, obviously, that is elicited, that is found in Saul as he says, I am Jesus. Why didn't he say, I am the Lord? Because Paul's or Saul's difficulty was that he, that he saw that man, Jesus, not as the Christ, not as the Lord. And, and he thought that the man Jesus, mentioned I think eight times in the book of Hebrews, was just a, a fraud. He was not the, the real thing. He was not the Messiah. So now when, when the Lord speaks to him from heaven, he, the Lord responds, I am, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And you come again to Revelation chapter number 22 and we find the Lord Jesus calling himself Jesus as well. But I'll have to leave that. Verse number three, he's going to give us not so much a, shall we say, a definition of what eternal life is or life eternal, but he's going to give us a, a description of what eternal life is. When I was saved back in 1981 in a tent in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, I didn't understand a whole lot about what eternal life was. I had been brought up in a Christian home, but I didn't understand a whole lot. What it meant to me that particular night was Two or three things. Number one, I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to be in hell. 
If the Lord comes, I'll go with him. That was, that was basically my comprehension of what eternal life was, which is, which is fine. It's all true. It's all very good. It's a wonderful truth. But the Lord Jesus goes far beyond that, and he says, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And obviously, as you read through John's gospel, you find many times where he speaks about him being sent. And they knew why he had been sent. He had, sent, he had been sent to give eternal life. So, just come with me for a moment. What does it mean that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent? Our coming to know the Lord Jesus is the means of our salvation. And that is the means that we get to know God as our Father. But it, not, it ought not to stop at that particular point. It is not only the means, it is, it is the goal of eternal life. And those who, are, those who are married or those who are perhaps in some kind of relationship like that will know that uh, when you started going with your with your current spouse, you perhaps thought you knew them, but now maybe 25 years have passed, or 30 years, or 50 years, and, and you know that you know them far better now than you knew them 60 years ago, or 40 years ago, or 25 years ago. It's, it's a process. It requires, it requires an investment of, of time. And that is what we find here in verse number three as well. If we are going to get to know the Savior more, if we are going to get to know God more, we have to invest our time. That's the way it is with any relationship. So, what do we find about knowledge? Well, knowledge, knowledge of God in the Old Testament is linked with blessing. The blessing, shall we say, starts with salvation. Think about uh, Job 22, verse number 21. He says, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. That, that is the moment of salvation. Thereby good shall come upon thee, or uh, unto thee. Or Jeremiah chapter 31, the new covenant, and every man shall know the Lord. So there is, there is blessing linked with knowing God. And you say, well, that's pretty obvious. And it, it is obvious. But it ought to encourage us to know him even more. But what is the proof of knowledge? Well, John, years after this particular prayer has been heard by him, John writes these words in his epistle. He says, hereby do we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. So true knowledge of God is going to be seen in our obedience to God's commandments. And then he writes in chapter 4 and verse number 7 that knowledge of God results in love. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. So the more that we know God, the more we obey God. The more that we know God, the more that we love not only God, but we love others as well. So knowing God produces changes in our lives. Verse 4, and with this I finish. He says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work. Now obviously he hasn't gone to the cross yet. He has spoken back in John chapter 14 about the works, which obviously has to do with the signs that he had done, but now it is a work that is going to be accomplished. But he can speak with such confidence that he says, I have finished the work. Because again, I say that as we read through the chapter, it is fairly obvious to me at least that, that he's taking a post-Calvary stance. And he's speaking as if he already were acting as our high priest, as if he already were in heaven. He's looking at life that has passed. For example, verse number, verse number 11. Now, I am no more in the world. Well, where was he? He was in the world. 
but he's taking a, a post-resurrection stance, as it were. So he says, I have finished the work. He had done many works. He had said many words, chapter 14, but now he says there is a work, and I have finished, I have finished that work. The work of Calvary, the work of salvation that, is, that was on our behalf. There was one more thing I wanted to mention tonight, but I, I think that I will leave it. But if you read through this chapter, you will find that there are, there are a few perils, a few dangers that the Lord Jesus sees as he considers leaving his apostles behind. There is the danger of separation because he says, I'm not in the world, they are in the world. Now he has provided for that because he has said in previous chapters that when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit. I will send another, another counselor, another, uh, another uh, comforter. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. I will send another comforter. But there would, there would be a sense of separation, and they would feel that separation. They had spent these three and a half years following him, listening to him, being with him, and now all of a sudden he's gone. So he understood that. There is the danger as well of, of opposition, because he says, keep them from the evil one. There's going to be opposition from the evil one, and he was asking for God to pr protect them from that. There, there is a danger as well of, of the fact that society was going to hate them. As they've hated me, they'll be hated as well. And so sometimes people hear the gospel, they think it's great, they perhaps make some profession, and then as the world turns against them, they say, I'm not gonna hold that flag up high anymore. I'm just gonna start to drop it. And the difference that there is between me and the world perhaps is not quite so important, and they drop the flag, and they drop the flag. And the distinction disappears. Well, the Lord Jesus speaks about that in this particular chapter as well. There's one more danger that I notice. And the word, the word world has to do with all these dangers. Uh, he says, when, when the world can see that there is unity, he says, they'll know that they are mine. And so the danger, obviously, is the opposite, disunity, the, the lack of unity amongst believers, which is seen in, in rivalry and competition and, and hatred and jealousy and all these types of things. And, and he knew that was possible. How do you know it's possible? Well, one, you say, because he knows all things. But besides that, he had already seen it. He had seen his disciples arguing among themselves who's going to be the greatest. And that would produce a lack of unity. So he sees these dangers and he prays for them. He was very aware of what their circumstances would be like after he left them. So again, I say, tonight we have in heaven a great high priest. And he lives to intercede for us. He sees us in all of our weakness, in all of our need. He knows what it is like to live in this world. He knows what it is like to be hated, to be despised. He knows what it's like to be sad, to be hungry. He understands all these things. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet sin apart. But he does intercede for us. And we can go to him with all of our needs and understand that he understands and he can meet.